Welcome back to The Rouge Report, the place for all the latest news, gossip and analysis from the world of cycling. As ever, I'm Ollie from Cycling Pulse and I'm here with Pat, who's currently on holiday but still doing the pod. How cool is that? Hey, Pat, where are you? I'm on the Gold Coast, just getting in a non-altitude training camp in advance of the Tour Down Under, which I'm going to in January 2020. So some of the listeners listeners, let us know if, if you're planning on coming to the TDU 2020. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, Pat, I mean, I've been following you on YouTube this past week, and it looks like you've got a pretty pretty sick apartment that you're staying in on holiday. Tell us about that. Uh, it's just down at Corumban on the Gold Coast. Got some good climbs inland on the beach, but the Gold Coast hinterland's got some really good climbs. Springbrook climbs, actually probably the longest one in, in Queensland that's not in Cairns. So, that's like up to 1,200 metres. Not Colombian altitude, but really good training grounds in, in the Gold Coast, probably second only to Adelaide, but Adelaide's way too cold except for January and February for me. Cool. Let's get into it then, Pat. A lot has gone on in the last seven days. Not so much um, on the on the kind of big racing side, at least, but lots of interesting things to talk about, I suppose. First up, why don't we get into what was probably the biggest story? I mean, I, I think this has been the biggest story in cycling I've seen f- f- yeah, for a while. Yeah. Okay. And this is obviously the, the Cam Jeffers Zwift controversy you know people are calling it robo doping all sorts of weird weird names what surprised me honestly is that this thing has gone global and like i've seen all sorts of news outlets from across the world have been have been shouting about this i mean what's what's your take on it first of all maybe quickly summarize it for anyone that doesn't know the the, the full story okay uh i did a, i did a full video on this with the timeline if you've got, got 15 minutes to spare but cam jeffers gets swift decides he wants to take it a little bit more seriously someone in his entourage convinces him to let them put a bot onto his swift account which will get do 50,000 meters climbing, altitude climbing on his account, which will unlock a special bike called the Tron bike. Uh, Cam Jeffers then uses said bike for however long and then he decides he wants to do the national national qualifiers uh, for the Great Britain or, or England national championships, eSports national championships, and then he uses this bot-obtained uh, Tron bike, which gives him an advantage over the basic bikes through all these qualifiers into the nationals finals and basically wins the national championships using that Tron bike. So other riders had that Tron bike, but he got it through using a bot. And there's a six-month British cycling investigation and subsequent to that, he has received a six-month suspension of on-road and off-road and has been disqualified from the national championships. Yeah, I mean, hell of a story. Um, When I first saw the, the news. Someone sent it, sent it to me and I immediately thought that it was something a bit more sinister, to be honest. I thought he'd kind of, he'd, he'd hacked his trainer or something to give him a few extra watts or something like that. But then it turned out that he'd got this, this Tron bike, you know, dishonestly. Um, but I, I mean, I'm in your boat here, Pat, based on your, your YouTube video. Like, I, I think it's kind of, it's all a bit of a storm in a teacup, isn't it, really? I get it. It's a technical contravention of, of rules, but, I mean, what? I mean, the world's gone mad, isn't it? The, the British cycling press release was, in my opinion, misleading. And if I was whiffed, 
I would be extremely angry at British cycling right now. When, when everyone, in, you know, you, you alluded to it just then and, and a lot of other people have too, when you read the British cycling press release, it sounds like he had someone in the crowd manipulating the data during the Nationals uh, final race, which isn't the case at all. It was this sort of technical breach which didn't actually give him an in-game, an in-game advantage as compared to the other players and would have been ironed out if Zwift had set up the finals race appropriately if they'd actually if you watch every other it would, it would be like for example in a pro fifa tournament if one player was only allowed was allowed to use like the all-time classic 11 which was overpowered um and another player wasn't during an actual competitive game just because the one other player had grinded for 10,000 hours to unlock that team now unlocks and things like that they're fine for general use and consumers that's often how platforms like zwift and fifa make make money but for competitive playing you you have to make sure in esports that every competitor has equal access to whatever team or bike they want that's just how you ensure a level playing field Uh, i yeah couldn't agree more uh and the first thing that i thought was yeah why isn't everyone just have access to the same bikes and surely this is going to be something that that zwift and the relevant governing body that they're conducting these races with is going to address, right? I mean, come on. So I think this is 100% a British cycling witch hunt against Cam Jeffers because he's mouthed off against them in the past because British cycling, I mean, I'm many thousand kilometers away, but I can tell overly draconian bureaucratic organizations when I see one and not allowing him to use GoPro footage to promote events and local criteriums. He got disqualified from a race for that before. And the fact that if anyone's seen DC Rainmaker's tweet, he Cam Jeffers hasn't been suspended from Zwift. They haven't terminated his account. And he's going to continue racing for, I think, the Wahoo Esports team doing Zwift races, non-British cycling UCI Zwift races. So Zwift have given Cam Jeffers no punishment I think Zwift are annoyed at British Cycling because they're saying, thanks, BC, now we've got Forbes articles basically detailing how our platform and our races are a complete joke. (laughs) So thanks for shining a light on it and releasing that press release when this really wasn't that bad at all. It's difficult to know, though, isn't it, how much Zwift are encouraged by by all this exposure, to be honest with you. Um, I mean... You know, they've got massive amounts of press and coverage anyway without this scandal going on. But this really seems to have struck a chord with, with a lot of people across the world. But I kind of understand it. I mean, it came at an interesting time as well because at the World Championships week previously, you know, they announced this this new this 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 new um agreement with the with the UCI so that in twenty twenty there will be the first ever um world esports world e-racing championships on Zwift. Um, and then this came out, you know, the week the week after, and it just seemed a little strange. And to be honest with you, I was trying to kind of link it all together and I, I couldn't put my finger on why, why the news would have come out then. And, you know, what, because, you know, British Cycling and Zwift would have been discussing this thing, obviously, um, but it's just such a minor, minor infringement. I suppose the point is, the point is that if they just tried to brush this under the carpet 
and cover it up, you know, maybe at some point it would have come out. And then given what's going on next year with this world championships, um, it, it could have kind of really tainted all of that. I, that, that. That's the only thing I can think of. I mean, generally I'd agree, but the problem is with that is that everyone in the public seems to be on Cam Jeffers' side. Everyone in the public is saying, guys, this isn't a big deal. And this is the people I mean are people who follow cycling, people who use Wift and actually understand what's happened. Of course, Forbes and sort of uninformed people who maybe don't really know what Zwift is and just read the British Cycling Press release think, oh, cheating in cycling again and now the cheating's come across to virtual reality. What a joke. But I don't know. If Zwift had just said, oh, this happened or had given to camp, had, you know, internally filed a record that they'd given him a formal warning for this but didn't deem it to breach any of their T's and C's at the time, which they've kind of said in a tweet themselves now. The problem is the person who actually complained to British Cycling, that that's the problem because then British Cycling, I guess, are obliged to investigate it. So, yeah, it's unfortunate. They made the decision on September 22nd, I think, so definitely some politicization with the actual announce or release date of this news i think british cycling definitely held it back a couple of weeks or a week after that uh, uci announcement which makes it even more shady in my opinion i suppose what it does do is it, it suddenly brings the spotlight back onto esports cycling e-racing um and this whole discussion's kind of now in play as to whether or not you know, there is a proper future for the sport. Now, a bit of a disclaimer, we worked with Zwift earlier this year um, when they had the first pro um, e-racing league, the the KISS Super League. And that was a series of professional teams, mostly continental teams, men's and women's, over a series of, uh, I think it was 12 rounds of racing on, on, on Zwift. Uh, and this was kind of like a test kind of event, if you like, for Zwift to try and iron out some of the you know, try and discover and iron out some of the problems that they might encounter when they want to roll out esports, you know, more more widely like they're going to do next year. Um, and naturally, there's always going to be issues, right? And I think this is what they were finding because you had these teams all in separate locations across the world racing these races. You know, there there were, I think, kind of weigh-ins before the racing, but, you know, you had teams on different trainers, and, you know, certain trainers can put out, you know, they're not all completely matched. That's that's the point. So all of this stuff is is needs to be completely standardized. I think what they're probably going to be doing next year in the world championships would be to have what you need is all competitors in one room competing on the same equipment. Everyone's weighed in, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's a massive logistical challenge, obviously, because you've got to get hundreds of people, hundreds of participants qualifiers whatever into one room from across the world um you know massive expense there you can't just have people doing it from from their living rooms uh wherever they happen to live um so there's a few things to to iron out i personally i i personally really like zwift racing i do it myself i think it's you know it, it's the best way to spend an hour on on the indoor trainer um and it it just completely divides opinion in, in the cycling community. So as soon as you go on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, you know, half the comments are just people going, this is a joke. It's not a real sport. Get out. What is this? And then you have others going, have you ever tried it? You know, it's actually really fun. 
Um, and I think the way to think of, of, of e-racing is it's, it's just something to do in addition to your outdoor road riding. It's just another discipline, right? And that's exactly how you should treat it. It's not just about pure power. If you look at these races, it's not always the rider with the highest watts per kilo that wins the race. Actually, it's rarely ever the rider with the highest watts per kilo that wins the race. And that's because, you know, things like drafting play in massively. Things like knowing the course is huge. The tactics are, are massive. Whether or not you want to bridge across to a to a group that's just attacked off the front, etc. All of this stuff unless you've tried it and actually raced, you don't really appreciate that uh, there is some some skill uh, involved. Uh, so I personally am a fan. Uh, I think there is a future for it. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely behind it. But yeah, it's just put this whole discussion back in play, which I, you know, I think this will all be valuable feedback for, for Zwift, to be honest. Why does change offend people? Why do people on Twitter say this is a joke and it's it's no substitute for real road riding or road racing. It's like, well, okay, is FIFA is playing FIFA? No one's saying that's a, a substitute for, for for the Premier League. It's just something different. It's something fun, exciting, and I think there, there's zero doubt in my mind that e racing is going to become is going to grow massively because all the people who don't have time. Maybe people don't feel it's safe. They don't have the handling ability to actually join a race. Maybe they have a job. You know, if, if you're a if you're a carpenter, can you afford to do criteriums? If you've got two kids and a wife and a mortgage, you know, maybe you live in the US. Do you really want to do a criterium, or do you want to look? You know, whilst you can look after your kid at the same time, do a race in in your house. What, why is that a bad thing, in my opinion? And I think it's a great thing. And I think look at the growth of esports globally. All esports, I don't see how cycling would be any different. And I think there's going to be unprecedented growth in this area. Swift, I think, got 120 million dollar US uh, capital funding uh, in the last 18 months, 12 months. There's a reason they got that money. <laughs> People don't just invest money because they're charitable. They invest it because they think the company's going to grow. And the way Swift is going to grow is a the hardware that they might get into and b e-racing so it's even something i'm interested in getting into myself there's a massive commercial opportunity for zwift because obviously you can you can see it you know they're going to own and operate an e-racing league or, or many leagues and suddenly you know the monetization opportunities are huge you know that's that's the reason why the aso for example is is one of the only one of the very few very profitable um enterprises within within cycling right because it has complete control of the the the, the big races which people are, are actually watching so all the sponsorship money comes into it all the broadcast rights come into it um so yeah for zwift obviously you know this is massive massively important for them yeah and like they can they can also create narratives around riders rather than sort of these you know how does a casual fan know what i guess how cannondale have changed into education first and how team names have changed, whereas they can sort of, you know, they're not wearing a helmet, the riders, their faces are visible, they can create personalities. That's how you grow a sport, just like the NBA. Um, you can just have, it's static in that they're not moving, so you can have all your sponsorship stuff, stuff set up. You can be live streaming. Cam Jeffers with live streams are by far and away his most successful videos on his channel. And I, I don't know, the guy. people commenting on my video saying, oh, you're just, 
supporting him. I've never spoken to a bloke in my life, bloke in, his, in my life. Don't know him at all, but um, just looking at his channel, it's clear. Look at his top nine videos and look at his regular local racing criterion vlogs where he's not allowed to use GoPro footage. You know, the difference in view viewership is exponential. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's it's here to stay and I don't know why people are so viscerally opposed to it. Most of the time it's because they've, they've it's like anything, they've, they've never even tried it, you know, it literally is. Uh, um, shout out to James Phillips, by the way. So James Phillips, who finished second originally, he was promoted to, to first. So he's the first ever British national e-racing champion uh we interviewed him earlier this year because he also rides for canyon zcc so canyon zcc is this new e-racing team and it's like the first they they bill it as the first ever professional e-racing team sponsored by canyon uh, and it's kind of all the best e-racers from across the world um uh yeah we went to see james down in wales um a few earlier this year he's he's really really nice guy and, and literally it just completely solves this problem for him so he you know he does this race he doesn't have he has hardly any time young family you know works a lot of hours and he just manages to fit in um uh e-racing in you know in, in the evenings and stuff i mean incredibly strong rider of course interestingly james phillips used to be he was like commonwealth gold or commonwealth silver or something medalist um table tennis but badminton i think I thought, I thought that was just an emoji he used to like troll on his Instagram, but then no, actually Commonwealth Games medalist in badminton. So there you go. Multifaceted man. Niche, right? That is yeah, niche. I'm jealous. That's the sort of niche skill I like. Cool. I, I guess sort of carrying on the, um, well, robo doping, doping kind of theme, I suppose. E doping, although we're going to go into the real world allegations perhaps we should say uh that, that there's been a bit of a storm in a related sport recently and that's in athletics now the reason why this relates to cycling is because betsy andreo who was very prominent in the whole investigation into lance armstrong she was a very prominent figure in that whole play uh she was the she's the wife of um frankie andreo, frankie andreo exactly who who was a teammate of lance and anyway some what betsy some of betsy's uh, insight into what was going on that year that, those, during that time, you know, really was really important in bringing, exposing Lance Armstrong. Now she's come out against Paula Radcliffe, a very, you know, the most famous sort of British, certainly marathon runner recently uh, because of what's happening with, at the Nike Oregon project. We don't want to dwell on this too long, I suppose, Pat, but what what, what do you know about this? You, you've, you've been following it for a bit of time, haven't you? I'll keep my thoughts sanitized because... This is a public podcast, but I've some of you may know, but I, I lurk. I lurk the dark places of Twitter where people don't fear to dwell, where allegations, most of which are false, first first start. And I follow accounts which I follow whistleblower accounts that people sort of don't know exist, and any but some of them are true. And um, I remember when I saw Paula Radcliffe's off scores, which is her. Um, her sort of blood value scores released many years ago and you compare that with her two-hour 15 marathon three minutes ahead of the next best marathon time and then Betsy Andreu has gone absolutely crazy on Twitter this week and Betsy Andreu has basically, basically compelled Paula Radcliffe to admit that Paula Radcliffe threatened a 
threatened a journalist who was going to publish those off scores, I think. Bessie Andre constantly said, did you say to this Times journalist, if you publish these, I'll sue you and you won't be getting the money back like Lance. <laughs> and Paula Radcliffe, oh, she, sometimes I think it's better for people just to turn turn their phone off, don't respond. If I was Paula Radcliffe, I wouldn't have responded to anything. But the problem is that she's obviously a Nike ambassador. Alberta Salazar, the head of the Nike Origin Project, Oregon Project, has received a four-year uh, ban from WADA after a full arbitration. So Sebastian, Lord Sebastian Coe was paid 100000 a year to be a Nike ambassador, I believe. The head of the, I think it was the British Athletics Performance, Neil someone, has just resigned. So I feel like it's one of those House of Cards moments that's about to start crumbling down. Um, who knows what will happen? I know that there's a Mo Farah press conference coming up that I'll be watching very carefully. I'm not sure if that's in the next day or two, but... Yeah, this, this does remind me of um, positive tests or the absence of positive tests really don't mean anything in cycling, in athletics, wherever. It's whistleblowers and doctors being caught, like we saw in Operation Adelaide, the doctor, Mark Schmidt, being caught. That's how you find who is doping. And um, I don't think this is over with the Salazar thing especially after his athletes have performed at such a high level for so many years. There's got to be some more skeletons buried somewhere. She gave an interview because she was at the World Championships with the BBC and she gave an interview um, on the BBC, or at least she was just discussing. Yeah, Radcliffe was discussing with, uh, with the anchor of the show just about all these allegations. It's like the cringiest interview ever. And you can see Radcliffe thinking... Oh my God, I'm a Nike ambassador. So I've got to sort of pretend. So I've got to pretend to be anti doping, but secretly defend uh, the Oregon project. It's so Her good. husband You've got to watch is it. currently Mo Farah's coach. So, so BB, the BBC, the BBC had to, they, I think their lawyers told them, I don't know, someone told them, the BBC had to subsequently after that interview release a statement saying, we apologise for not stating at the time that Paul Radcliffe has these conflicts of interest being what, what we just stated because it wasn't said at the time. And once you see that in that context, you're like, oh, no. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. I, I don't know why people – she shouldn't say anything because it just makes you look more stupid later on. Don't defend people like Alberto Salazar. Like – yeah, she she was basically saying, feeling sorry for Alberto Salazar, some of the other, his current athletes at the Nike Oregon Project. You see that guy with the, the mullet and moustache? He looks like a 90s porn star. Um, one of his runners, the American guys, was saying, yeah, Alberto, he believes, he said he believes that Alberto Salazar was genuinely just interested in the effects of testosterone cream on his athletes just to see what would happen in case another person rub that cream on them that was the only reason it was actually a benevolent reason why he was doing those testosterone tests, cream tests and everyone's like man just stop just, just just wear it on the chin i read that that was hilarious absolutely ridiculous that yeah that's there's been so much drama in sport the last week there was a giro monsterland or monsterland giro uh florian seneschal punch-up as well with max walsheed it's been more drama than, than actual good racing, apart from the start of the Italian autumn classics. Yeah, you were all over this punch-up. But the, 
I mean, how the how the hell can anyone think that Max was in the 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 wrong? Right. Even in in full. Okay, so in in a cycling sprint, in full speed, watching it one time through, it's actually very difficult to see what what happens or who's in the wrong. Typically, this wasn't one of those cases. This was one of the cases where you see the front on view, watch it in full speed, you're like, nah. While she has done nothing wrong, it's a hundred percent the Dukoni Quickstep guy's fault. And I'm not sure if people have seen it or not. You probably have. It was uh, pretty popular around around social media, but. Florian Seneschal, quick step rider, was leading out Avada Hodge, uh, quick step sprinter, pulls off after his turn like a sort of degrade noob, um, what you should never do in a sprint. He turns his head the other way, and obviously everyone knows when you're driving a car or whatever, when you turn your head one way and you're not thinking about it and you're tired, you will actually drift or steer the other way. He steers into the path of Max Volscheid, the Team Sunweb sprinter, and he his front wheel hits Walshed's back wheel, not the other way around. 100% Florian Seneschal's fault, 100%. And then after the race, mid-interview, Max Walshed's doing an interview with German TV. He punches him in the head. Walshed turns around, clocks him once, steps over to him and says, <laughs> and then Florian Seneschal pretended like he wanted a piece of him and had his teammates hold him back. Probably the most embarrassing thing I've seen in cycling this year, and then Seneschal was unapologetic. He put out a fake apology tweet. Then Dakonic Quickstep made him retract it, and they put up a scripted apology on his Twitter. And then he's come out later, even again. He's saying, "I saw something on Cycling News. Don't know how reputable it is, but apparently Seneschal was saying, yeah, I actually think I did do the right thing.' Bolshoi has a reputation for riding dangerously, so he sucks." <laughs> yeah, he said that. He said that. Other riders congratulated him for hitting. I don't, I'm hitting not sure I've seen that. I've seen <laughs> Willie Smith's YouTube video saying he's the most unprofessional person he's ever seen in cycling. So, yeah. Who's no, Seneschal? Yeah, Willie Who's... Smith put up a YouTube video oh, absolutely wow. canning Florian Seneschal. You don't often see that pro riders canning other pro riders, but it's a really good video. Basically, said super unprofessional and cowardly. Oh, yeah. And, and it's always like the, the, the punch ups in cycling are always so pathetic, aren't they? Yeah, except Max Volscher's 92 kilos and like six foot five, so um, probably not a guy I would be trying to hit. And also punching someone in the helmet, that's like 50 IQ level <laughs> <laughs> intelligence. Like it's literally designed to protect their head from 80 kilometer an hour impacts, not a tiny angry Frenchman's little little punch with carbon shoes on. So it was, Yeah, it was a yeah. pathetic jab, wasn't it? I know it kind of. I know. I know we're laughing about it, and um, it's a bit ridiculous. It did kind of. It has irritated me how Seneschal hasn't received any form of official punishment for that. Not that I've seen, like an internal fine from Dakoni Quickstep for what fifty francs, really? Like, I don't think. How can that be accepted? If any other sport, if you just assaulted another player, you'd be getting like a three-month ban. If you did that in the NBA, just went up and clocked another player season-long ban so i don't really especially on the interview because it, again it's not good for the image of the sport i don't understand how he's not received further punishment yeah yeah exactly um i don't know we'll see who who are the most famous like punches in the peloton you got like uh moscon's a bit of a bad boy isn't he and so is um buani obviously oh renshaw before he retired um 
Luke Rowe, I guess, with the Tony Martin face push. <laughs> Nasa Buwani, obviously. <laughs> Buwani has actually like really gone for some people before, in the past. He seems like a bit of a um, live, lively character, to be honest. Cyclists aren't good at punching other people, I don't think, generally. And in carbon-soled shoes, it becomes even more difficult. Uh, carrying on on the racing theme this week. So there was the Giro dell'Emilia. Uh, and there was just one thing I wanted to 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 point out. So this race was won by Roglic, who's obviously had a, you know, he's had a really hell of a season. He must be tired, right? Anyway, the point is, is this is something that came up on the Peloton subreddit. Uh, and it was a tweet from Antoine Veya, who, who he's quite a controversial figure. And he was the old, well, very controversial. He was the coach of the Festina team during the whole Festina scandal back in the late 90s. And basically what he has done, he's estimated uh, Roglic's, Roglic's power uh, after five hours of racing and the sixth climb around what it, uh, Bologna, I think. Uh, and he said... He estimated that for five minutes and 44 seconds, uh, Roglic averaged 495 watts, which would put him at 7.6 watts per kilo, assuming he's 65 kilograms. That means he's, he's then done a calculation of his VO2 max, which would mean, I think, 95 for his VO2 max. And then he said, so normal or not normal? Now, if you actually look into this, so, you know, 95 VO2 max and, and that watts per kilo, especially after five hours of racing. I mean, that's, that, that's like insane, right? Insane. Uh, so it's, it's just interesting. This guy, he, yeah, he is controversial. He makes these kind of, uh, he makes these, these estimate, estimates from time to time. Um, so take them with a pinch of salt, but just quite interesting. I think I think he's got the calculations wrong. I think I think he's not. Mike Woods put his actual power data up, and I think Roglic only beat him by a few few seconds extra. So I, I think Roglic would have only been doing about I say only would have been doing about seven watts per kilo. Although I don't think I don't think Roglic may be sixty five kilos. I don't know. Uh, all you can do when you see estimations of things like this is rely only on actual power data from people's Strava. I saw Velo News put up an article where they said, this is a couple of days ago, they said Chloe Dygert weighed 66 kilos and Annemiek van Leuten weighed 62 kilos. And that's just patently wrong. Like Annemiek van Leuten weighs 56 kilos. In the, there is 0% chance Annemiek van Leuten weighs over 60 kilos. Katrina... Katrina Garfoot, the Australian, um, she mostly in Commonwealth Games uh, road race, Ollie. She's very lean rider, um, probably a bit shorter than Van Vleuten, but Van Vleuten's five foot six, and we all know how lean she is. Time trial specialist, and they're just saying she's sixty two kilos, and then basing calculations off that. So, if you have the underlying numbers incorrect like that, then sort of watts per kilo calculations just fall out the window and almost become <laughs> irrelevant. Now, the Velo News, they, they, do, they do a lot of other good stuff, but to me that was just absurd. And when people said that Banal was 61 kilos and then Pogaccia was 66, 67 kilos, I think there's a lot of overestimation of, of people's weights, particularly when the actual VAM, which is vertical out, I think, out, Altitude meters gained, which is how many meters you're gaining per hour. Um, 
that's the number that actually shows how fast you're climbing up a hill and if you're climbing up at a certain speed and your power meter says you're doing a certain power well then you the equation will say that you are a certain weight <laughs> regardless of what the team is pretending your weight is yeah you've got to take them with a pinch of salt Veya has some previous here so one of his famous allegations was made in in 2009 so i don't know if you remember so Contador, it was like stage 15 of the Tour de France. Contador, uh, the ascent up to Verbier, summit finish up to Verbier. Contador absolutely crushed it. Uh, and immediately after, you had Greg LeMond come out and kind of question, um, you know, question that performance. Um, and I think the reason LeMond was questioning it, because Veya had come out at the time and estimated that for 20 minutes, 21 minutes basically, to ascend the summit, Contador must have averaged, he estimated he averaged 490 watts, which would have given him a uh, a, a, a VO2 max of 99.5, so which couldn't have been achieved without, you know, without some help. So uh, yeah, Veya enjoys just sort of this type of thing. I think he, he's like the Piers Morgan of the cycling world. He just basically seems to have no accountability to anybody and just hosts these obscene I've never really seen him post anyone doing below 480 watts for a certain period of time. <laughs> he says that every climber does like 480 watts for 10 minutes. And it's a shame because I think he did get one of the sky numbers correct, which was later through leaks proven to be like pretty accurate. But then if 90% of the time you're grossly incorrect, it kind of uh, undermines when you are right. So I, I, He's been off. He's not on my list of Twitter people I lurk anymore. I can't. I can't deal with it. I can't deal with not normal in, not normal in all caps. Every tweet, not a reputable uh, source. But what is he? I, I want to know what. What does he want to get out of this? Is he just looking for a few more like Twitter followers? He's just mad at the cycling world. I think. I think he. I think he thinks that he's really mad that there's like this new spin of oh, there's this new generation, everyone's clean now. All the people that were in cycling before, like like him and like Armstrong and Ulrich, they're all bad people and um, no one dopes anymore. So let's just enjoy the show. And he's trying to say, no, you're all the same as me. It's the same, exactly the same thing is happening now. And just look at these performances. They're clearly not normal. Um, I wouldn't say Roglic's performance was categorically not normal in Giro d'Amelia. I think it's... He's probably got the best fit five-minute power uh, watts per kilo in the world right now, and that makes perfect sense given his physiology, given his Grand Tour pedigree, and, yeah, <laughs> given his performance on, in Tour de France, finishing up steep five- to ten-minute climbs. So um, I don't think it's too too unusual, to be honest, given how well he did on, um, I think, that Andorran stage with Valverde, who's similarly a really good five- to ten-minute power guy, although probably not the... Um, Postable for clean cycling. Yeah, and 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 uh, Veya's tweet it just starts in in capitals, insane record, as if it's just like fact. <laughs> it's so good. I mean, if you like it for entertainment, it's good. And then, well, Roglic. Okay, so he won. This is a, what the race he actually won. Giro dell'Emilia. It's the first of the Italian four classics. That was on the fifth of October. Then last night he won Trevali Varesin, which is a a uh, lovely race around uh, Varese in northern Italy uh, near Lugano, I think. And he won that in a different manner, not on the final climb. He actually attacked a breakaway group, really good counter-attack move. So I'd encourage you to watch 
the highlights of that if they actually show that. I think the Italian stream has the full live stream. And then tonight is Milano Torino, which uh, I'll definitely be watching. I think I might even do a live stream commentary, but Egan Bernal is racing and it's got two two hard clients up there. The Superga, a hard, hard uh, mountain uh, climb near Turin. And have you watched this race the last couple of years? No, I haven't, no. So last year, or maybe, the, yeah, last year, this was super dodgy and people, proponents of the unwritten rule, <laughs> this isn't YouTube, so maybe just just uh, go on to my Instagram or Cycling Pulse Instagram, but last year, Miguel Angel Lopez, he was chasing Thibaut Pino up the road. This is on the final climb. We're in the last 3Ks. Thibaut Pino's in a break. David Godot, his domestique for FDJ, who we've seen pulling massive turns this year in the Tour de France. But this is last year in Milan, not Torino. Godot pulls off, finishes his turn, and just basically does a hard right, collapses to the right. Meanwhile, behind him, Miguel Angel Lopez had caught up to Pino and had just begun to attack around the outside. Godot crashes into his front wheel, takes him out. Pino just goes full steam ahead and wins. And Miguel Angel Lopez only loses by about nine seconds. So I, I, I couldn't believe that hadn't got more play for maybe the worst win ever. I mean, Pino obviously rode well, but Miguel Angel Lopez seems to be the unluckiest guy in the peloton, I reckon. I have to, I'll have to check that out then. You should do a, a review of it on your, on your channel. I would, but our float bike's going to get me. They are. They're going to get you. Uh, so I guess that brings us on to, yeah, Sunday is going to be the last big race of the season, the last monument, Il Lombardia. Um, what are your thoughts on this? It's always a kind of climbers one, isn't it, Il, Il Lombardia? Yeah. There's a Chiviglio climb, which is the it's a hard climb up from Brunate in, uh, in Como, near Lake Como. Uh, it goes up and then, it's, yeah, it's about, 15-minute climb, I think, and then Primoz Roglic is the hot favourite for this race based on Trevally Varesin and Giro de Emilia. Roglic is the hot favourite. Dark Horse is Egan Bernal. I'm not sure who else is starting. Maybe Iguita, uh, the other Colombian. But, yeah, Roglic is looking very, very difficult to beat. Um, I'm not sure anyone's going to be able to distance him on the Chipilio, and if they can't, then... They're not going to be able to probably gap him on the on the descent either. Although, nearly put him into difficulty on that descent in the Giro d'Italia. So, yeah, I think I doubt a Roglic in the Vuelta, but it's very very hard to look past him for this. I mean, it's it's a hard finish. It's a climbers. This is the climbers monument to finish the season. What about Nibali though? I don't know. I think I'm. I mean, I never count him out, but. It would be amazing if he managed to win three of these three Lombardias because he's done it in the same way before attacking on the top of the descent off the Chivilio, a very technical hairpin descent. And he basically says, I may crash and die, but this is the <laughs> this is the only way I can win this race. If you if you go and watch him attacking in twenty fifteen, it's crazy how he attacks the group and he nearly crashes about three times, but I don't think I'm not sure he'll have the legs to stay with Primoz or Bernal, or even David David Godot, the FDJ guy. He's done very well as well, so I think he's another contender for the podium. Maybe Mike Woods if he's racing for Education First. Bring it on. We shall see. We shall see. Yeah, I'm definitely going to try and catch that for sure. Um, cool. Well, look. I mean, Pat. What? Anything else exciting happened this week? 
I guess not not too exciting, but bigger, the bigger riders are starting to wrap up their seasons. I think Lorenko's ridden his last race. Julian Alaphilippe has officially announced his the end to his twenty nineteen season. He he is officially cooked. I think if anyone's cooked, it's Alaphilippe. Yeah, like, there were some photos after the World Champs with those like just his eyes. <laughs> he looked like an like. His soul had left his body, and it was just like <laughs> a corpse yeah. was left inside. I felt so bad for him wearing the yellow jersey for fourteen days when you are French and you're the biggest French rider. The energy that takes must have been unbelievable, especially when I mean you think about the end of the Tour de France. Say say he was a hundredth on GC in those last four or five stages. If he was a hundredth on GC, there's no way he would have been having a ride as hard as compared to when he was. I mean, he had to ride full gas defending his jersey from stage. I'm looking at it now. He wore the yellow jersey on stage three. There's a team time trial on stage two. So he had to protect that the entire race um, when it probably wasn't his actual target. And it just that's just what happened. So massive season for him. And I guess world championships would have taken a lot out of him as, as well, probably. Just like with Mads Pedersen, I'd be surprised if Mads Pedersen uh, won too much in in the next sort of rest of the 2019 season. Mm, mm. I did see Mads Pedersen's new new track uh, look look very smart, I have to say, in in the World Champ rainbow bands and, and stuff. He's a big um, boy, isn't he? So, like when you when you look at him yeah. compared to sort of, he looks yeah. he looks young though. Yeah, he's he looks well. He, he's only 23. I mean, I'll be interested to see. I think. It could go one or two ways. It can be sort of sometimes when there's this freak race that's like when it's a really pure climbers race, well, then the best climber is going to win generally or, or out of the pool of the top five climbers. And you, the world will know who those names are. Generally, when it's a sprint, you'll probably know who the, who the sprinter is. But when it's sort of this misc grind fest that Yorkshire was, I mean, let's be honest, he is a bit of a, of a random winner. I mean, I know, I'm, I know I'm a hipster cycling fanatic, but a lot of people would have woken up and said, "Sorry, who is who is this Mads guy?" So I, do, I really hope he. I know he came second in Ronda, um, but I hope he does win some big races next year. That'd be great for the jersey, great for his career. Um, so hopefully he goes well in the classics next year. Yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed for Mads. Uh, just very quickly to to wrap up, I suppose there's the news that Greipel, veteran, the gorilla Greipel, he looks like he might be joining uh, Corinthian Circus, uh, which could be an interesting move. Still remains to be seen how that team's going to sort of develop, uh, and if Matthew Van der Poel is still going to be there. I, it just seems unlikely to me that it, that team will be racing in the World Tour as Corinthian Circus. It just, yeah. I think Canyon want to make more of a big deal of Vanderpol. So, I don't, yeah, it'll be interesting over the next couple of months to see what happens. You're more plugged into this than I am, but is it? I know I'm pretty sure Bora Hansgrohe or Sagan's wage at Bora Hansgrohe is paid for at least in part or entirely almost by Specialized. Like, is that how often does that happen? Because I feel like Corinthian Circus cannot pay Matthew Vanderpol's actual market wage or salary surely there's no way they can so it must be canyon footing the bill and if it's canyon footing the bill canyon should be saying hey we need you in the biggest races or as much more regularly no no i know canyon are all over vanderpoel uh and and uh yeah exactly i think it will be a 
I wouldn't be surprised if it was if it wasn't a if it was a similar it will be a similar setup to to what's going on with Sagan at Bora Hansgrohe, I expect. Um, but uh, you know, you'd expect the team just to be called Canyon or something. <laughs> just call them, yeah, or yeah, make them a, a name sponsor if they're. But that's the thing: if they just want to pay his wage, but not actually have all the other, you know, pay for everything else, pay for the equipment. It's probably cheaper just to pay one guy's wage uh, than be a name name sponsor for for a team. And and if you want, to, if you were interested interested in this sort of thing, go and check out Cycling Pulse. Just put out a a post on uh, I think Patrick Lafeuve said some info about the kind of quick step sponsor arrangements and and how the money works very interesting to see how the the naming rights work they seem to be the most expensive component but yeah i hope vanderpol goes to a bigger world tour team and just goes focuses on the road for the next two to three years because life is short you only have so many it's hard to win these big races you need two or three or four cracks at them because just luck gets in the way. Uh, so I really hope he focuses on the road next year selfishly so I can make more videos about him. Bring it on. Uh, okay, I think that's about it for this week. Um, so as ever, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, thanks for your support over the last few weeks. Um, and yeah, over and out from me for this week. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Make sure if you following Cycling Pulse or me on, on Instagram, let us know what, content you'd like us to put out throughout the off season and then uh we'll, we'll definitely re- take that on board and maybe some some player not player rider reviews for the 2019 season remco and mvdp are definitely on the cards so let us know what you'd like to see but till then ciao